Transmission will start in five seconds from now. Five, four, three, two, one, in. I will not be pushed, filed, stamped, indexed, briefed, debriefed, or numbered. My life is my own. They're frequently dumb, but they're sometimes astute. They're always emphatic on a degree absolute. They're breaking the prisoner right down to the root. That whole TV show on a degree absolute. If you like lava lamps and weather balloons and whack-ass inflections from Patrick McGoon, Chris and Glenn made a podcast especially for you. It's a degree absolute. Glenn. Chris. You and I are both highly trained critics. In fact, it was a criticism fellowship program where we met. It's true. Do you recall? The Annenberg something something uh, now defunct yeah. hasn't hasn't been funded in a while. It's it's fully unfunked. Yeah. Subsequently graduated people who have gone on to far greater career heights than than I have experienced, and I'm especially happy for them. Uh, <laughs> I can but tell. Uh, <laughs> we did both attend a, a lecture early in that program given by our friend Michael Phillips of the yep. Chicago Tribune. Yep, who admonished us. When practicing criticism, always to remember our Goethe. Hmm. Du must ambas oder hammer sein. That's very close. It's very close. I remember it was some Goethe, and that was probably that one. So are the shows we review anvils and we're supposed to be the hammer? Is that where we're, is that where you're getting from that? The Goethe. The Goethe. Anne Hornaday recounts this in her criticism book, too, about what's it trying to do? Was it successful or not in doing this, and mm-hmm. how so, and okay. was that thing worth doing? Right. That's the, that, I mean. The three questions. Yes. Okay. I feel like that's encoded in Du must ambas oder hammer. Is sign. it? Is it? No. No, it's not. It's just about, uh, it's a It's, it's a not. It's just, of, I, I, I haven't heard the three questions in German. Yeah, it's a vaguely fascistic view of the world. You could I've clear s- this up by by just giving us the original German of the three questions. Uh, <laughs> I can't do that. I took a year of German. That's it. I can tell you. Sprechen Sie Goethe? I could tell you that Marianne Eason ihre Posbrot, uh, which means mm-hmm. Marianne eats her paws bread, which is the, na- the name for the sandwich she eats during recess. That's that's all I can tell you. A pause bread. Pause bread, yeah. Because it's, it's, it's bread you eat during a pause. What's, what's, what's complicated oh, okay. about that? Mm-hmm. All right. So if you take a break and eat bread, are you breaking bread? I feel like breaking bread requires a dining companion, nope. at least in English. Nope, it's just uh, pausebrot. And when uh, Six eats a sandwich in this episode, it is on some of the whitest fucking bread I've ever seen. It is I like noticed styrofoam. that styrofoam. It's crazy. I was thinking like even Mrs. Butterworth probably would not serve a sandwich like that in her home or his home until I realized he was just using it as, as bait to lure a pigeon. Tradecraft. Yep. Tradecraft. And he, I think he demonstrates a lot of tradecraft. Hey, that, lots of tradecraft. Too much. Arguably too much tradecraft. Um, Which is hammer into anvil. By the way, do must emboss oder hammer sign. You must be hammer or anvil. Yes, yes, that's what he says. Uh-huh. 
Well, the thing is, in 1966, Patrick mm. McGowan, star of the long-running TV spy series Danger Man, resigned at the height of that show's popularity to create a new show about a spy who resigns from government service and wakes up in a mysterious, inescapable village where each resident is referred to only by their number. Sing it. With exceptions. Which with exceptions. Notable exceptions. Surreal and provocative, silly and pretentious, ahead of its time, and innately and unambiguously and lavadlampedly of its time, that short-lived, long-tailed series, Glenn, was called The Prisoner. Yes, it was. This is number number ten for us. I think it was shown twelve in the in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Uh, where does our guru Alex Cox put this in his recommended viewing sequence? Repo Man O'Tour, past a degree absolute guest, dare I say, friend of the show, Alex Cox. He has it at oh ten. Okay. 10. So. Okay. Well, there you go. All is right with the world. Yeah. Good. It was certainly the one that I liked most as a uh, toe-headed youth uh, when I was in college. It's the one we watched most often with my uh, college roommate and friends. I suspect it's because it is one of the rare episodes where Six has an unambiguous win. He brings number two down. He actually is in the room while number two brings himself down, as we'll get to. His mission in this episode is to own number two. Yes. Escape, schmiscape. It's not, it's not what that's about. It's about no. it's about um, righting a wrong, uh, uh, correcting an injustice in his, in his belief. Right. Um, I think a younger man would seize on this particular episode because right. I was so desperate for a win. I'm not sure I still hold it in this high regard, but I want to talk it through with you because I'm, I'm still undecided about how I feel about this episode. So I can't wait for me to rate it at the end because I don't know what I'm going to rate it at this point. You have come to the right place, Glenn, because it turns out that this is the private personal by hand punch card driven podcast where we take The Prisoner, the very show you and I are already discussing. Uh Uh-huh. And we push it. Yes, we do. Like a bulldozer on the hull of the good ship ever given, the 220,000 ton cargo vessel that as we're recording this has now been freed from the Suez Canal. Topical. Love it. Five out of six. It is topical. You can apply it to your skin, <laughs> else it gets the hose again. Okay. We file it, like Jim Rockford. Ah, excellent. Okay, I'll, the pithiness is what I like about that. That's six out of six. We stamp it, like a flat foot marching in place to keep his feet warm on the beat. Ah, nice. That's an Untouchables reference, isn't it? It is. It, it is. is. Uh, six you out of six. free lesson in police work? <laughs> the movies. Uh, yeah, so I love it. I love it. Um, six out of six. You're, you're, you're fired on all cylinders here, Chris. We index it, like Michael C. Hall's colonoscopy. Okay, I'm gunning Ensign <laughs> Dexter, right? Okay, all right. Okay, wow. Uh, yeah, I gotta, I, I've, I've been working so hard trying to do a Dexter Gordon one. Yeah. And I, I just haven't made it work yet. So yeah. I've, I've returned... Twice now to the Michael C. Hall. Sure. Hall. And for that reason, I'm taking off a point. So that's going to be a five out of six, I'm afraid. I, I accept that. That's fair. Mm-hmm. We brief it. Mm, here we go. Like the Whedon cut. Ah, <laughs> okay. All right. I, uh, just on principle, I have to give that a four out of six. I'm sorry. Uh. Yeah. Are you objecting to Whedon or are you objecting to Zack Snyder? Because I'm, the, I'm objecting to have to... The wheel of, of time has turned round so that they're both like yeah, I'm pariahs now for different reasons. I'm objecting to having to think about that for another second. In fact, second. I think Snyder's stock is actually higher than, yeah, than Whedon's yes, it at is. the at Yes, the it moment. is for real reasons. But yeah, it's, I don't want to think about it anymore. So, mm-hmm. Yep. We debrief it. Mm. Like Oprah talking to Meghan and Harry. Sure. Sure. Both topical and uh, fits the remit. So, yeah, uh, that's six out of six for me. Uh-huh. We number it mm-hmm. like a Carol Churchill play. 
Okay, I'm going to need a that, little bit more. Carol, Carol Churchill's I, play, I know, a, a number. I know who Carol Churchill is. Yeah, that's the title of the play, A Number. Okay, all right. It's about wow. cloning, Glenn. All right. The character doesn't, they figure out over the course of the play that they're a clone. Okay, so, I mean, spoiler. Spoiler. Uh, spoiler <laughs> for, all those, yeah. for all those Churchill heads. There was a, uh, a young, promising actor uh, who appeared in this play. I'm not sure if it was its first production, but certainly before it came to Studio Theater in Washington, D.C., which is where I saw it. But Daniel Craig was his oh. name, and he never did anything after that. It's a real, yeah. real shame. He, Good for uh, him. He, he seemed to be very talented. Oh, that's good. I, I hope he, wherever he is, I hope he's happy. I, yeah, I hope so, too. Uh, because I didn't know it, I have to automatically give you a six out of six. <sighs> I suppose. Yes. Ah, all right. Well, we're going to talk McGoohans, we're going to talk MacGuffins. Our inquiry mm. into this still perplexing document is not of an... I forgot to do the adjectives, man. Yes, you did. Oh. This is not the first time. It is not of a degree dissolute. Okay. Okay. Good. I love this off the dome. I love this. This is improv. This is we're we're all, we're all I, here I in the moment. Shambolic. You're gonna cut this pause, right? So it's gonna seem like it just was boom, 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 like that. It is not of a degree. Uh huh. Come on. Mm, misdirected. It is not of a degree. Sure. It is not of a degree tepid, Glenn. Oh. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I'll, I'll take that. Not of a degree. Uh, I, I did. Not of a degree dissolute, not of a degree shambolic, not of a degree tepid. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What what degree do you think it is? It's a degree absolute. Yes, it is. That was me. That was me attempting the theme song right then. Good. I give you absolution. <laughs> Each man has his breaking point, you know. And you are no exception. Ah. When a girl is driven to suicide, the prisoner calls it murder. A murder he must avenge in Hammer into Anvil. You can stop acting now, you know. I've been on to you from the beginning. I knew what you were doing! The prisoner abandons his plans to escape to destroy his captors in the next dramatically different adventure of The Prisoner on this channel. Hammer into Anvil, directed by... Pat Jackson, one of the regulars, a veteran of many Danger Man episodes. He also directed A, B, and C. He also mm-hmm. directed The Schizoid Man. Mm-hmm. He directed the McGuinless Anomaly, Do Not Forsake Me, Oh My Darling, which we have yet to discuss. Mm-hmm. But dude's been around. I'm also going to read from Alex Cox's fine work of Latter-day Prisonerology, I Am Not a Number, about this episode's screenwriter okay. uh, in his, his only appearance in the Prisoner canon. Says Cox, the writer was Roger Wotus, maybe Wotus, I'm going to say Wotus. Yeah, say Wotus. Wotus, who died in 1993, has only four television credits. If Markstein, that of course would be script editor George Markstein, chose him to write an episode, he showed surprising good taste. Wotus was a poet, a humorist, that's with the two U's, of course. Sure it is. And a committed left-winger whose anti-Thatcher poetry from the 80s is quite (laughs) splendid. (laughs) Okay, anti-Thatcher poetry. Yes. What is your favorite sample of anti-Thatcher poetry, Glenn? <laughs> Let's see. Uh, her hair's a helmet, uh, and that's all I can say about it. Yeah, see, that's okay. somehow it's more, it's more free verse. It's more blank verse. Yep. I like it. I put you on the spot, and you delivered. I think Freestyle Love Supreme can rest easy. Uh, it is very solid. Favorite piece of anti-Thatcher poetry. I'm still going to say Elvis Costello's Tamp the Dirt Down. Okay. All right. This uh, episode opens with... Uh, well, before we got to do the Q&A. 
I like to keep track of the Q&A. I know, get, I know. I'm sorry. I stepped on your thing. You, it's my thing. I, we, we get the default villain number two voice in the village. We get that right. guy again. Robert Rietti. Robert Rietti. We do get an insert shot of Patrick Cargill kind of with a gloaty face. Uh, he's not actually speaking yeah. the lines. He's just kind of gloating. And, of course, we have seen Patrick Cargill before. Uh, he played Thorpe in Many Happy Returns. Oh, that weasel. Yes, and it's amazing how, and this is maybe why McGowan chose him to be in this particular episode, if you need to convey weasel, if you need to convey evil, if you need to convey sadist, uh, you go with somebody who can really cradle a glass of brown liquor mm-hmm. the way he did in that episode. Yeah. Uh, it, and let's talk Patrick Cargill, because um, a year after this, he would go on to star in a British sitcom called Father, Dear Father, for like seven seasons or something like that, mm. and become a household name. He is another one of these guys. No, another one of these number twos with a very long personal life section on Wikipedia <laughs> that contains, as Wikipedia snittily notes, no citations. But okay, you have to read this thing, Chris, and I. I, I just admonish listeners to go out there and read it to it's a passage that is written with an unusual amount of warmth and affection in its tone which is not what you consider the default wikipedia vibe it's clearly someone who has the inside track i mean i will read you a passage uh Cargill's private life was little known and his homosexuality was not public for decades for many years Cargill's companion was vernon page an eccentric landscape gardener poet and lampoon songwriter huh and as soon as I read that, I thought, okay, I have to make so many changes in my life. I have to, <laughs> for my obituary to read eccentric landscape gardener, poet, yeah. and lampoon songwriter, I have to ditch pretty much 53 years of life to make bold changes. Cargill was a private man who did not relish his celebrity status, though he was always kind to fans who approached him. You see what I mean about mm. this? This is like, this is, this is his PR yeah. guy mm-hmm. or someone who's very close to him. He would shun the awards ceremonies in favor, with a U, in favor of a quiet evening at home playing Mahjong. <laughs> <laughs> with, with his eccentric landscape gardener. <laughs> landscape. Or landscape architect? Landscape gardener, no, poet, landscape and gardener, lampoon. Landscape gardener, poet, and lampoon, satirical, right, lampoon, lampoon songwriter. songwriter. Right. Well, I'm glad he, he wasn't one of those run-of-the-mill, bud-drinking, <laughs> Dave Matthews listening, Fast and Furious watching. Landscape gardeners, yeah. Landscape gardener, humorous, satirical songwriter poets, because we got enough of those guys. I mean, he probably poured a lot of his poetry and his lampooning into his topiary. Notwithstanding his reluctance to come out, and that's in quotes, which is how you can Mm. tell there's a certain disdain Mm. for the concept of coming out. Uh, Notwithstanding his reluctance to come out in this respect, Cargill was happy in his private life, and his wit, when not in the spotlight, reflected that. What? Citation needed. What the hell are we talking about here? Hmm. It goes on. Once, whilst lunching, whilst, whilst <laughs> yeah. lunching? Come right. on. No, he wasn't lunching. He was clearly attending luncheon. Yes, he was attending luncheon. Once, whilst lunching on finger sandwiches, once while lunching with Ray Cooney, the theatrical impresario, Cargill observed when a particularly uh-huh. handsome waiter mistakenly removed his soup spoon, ah, look, Ray, the dish has run away with the spoon. This is some inside. This is some inside <laughs> baseball right here. That's a lot. That's a lot. That's pretty good. 
In uh, later years of his life, Cargill lived in Henley-on-Thames with his last companion. I want to be somebody's last companion. With his last companion, <laughs> yeah, right. James Camille Markowski. His final girl, James Camille his final Markowski. Girl. And here's a sentence I want also put on my tombstone. Cargill's many pets included a monkey, a parrot, and a castrated ram. A monkey, a parrot, and a castrated ram. A monkey, and a parrot, and a castrated ram. It's good to know he's not the sort of monster who would castrate a parrot, I think. <laughs> That's right. Castrate a monkey. I like to think that, you know, the straight number twos end up in the therapy zone. They go to the therapy zone. They have uh-huh. really depressing uh, scotch, I suppose, in that yeah. cave while, while having a blanket over the head. But I like to think that the gay number twos, of which there have been several, I like to think there's an eagle kind of adjacent to the to the village yeah. where they can just kind of go and unwind. That's my right. theory. Glenn is referring to uh, a favorite uh, DC, well, I don't know if it's a favorite, but it's a... Uh, uh, a DC bar that is it still around. It used to be on on Massachusetts Avenue, and uh, that block was raised. This and... is this is a inside baseball for no one. But actually, there are several cities that have an eagle. Uh, oh, it's okay. kind of a, it's kind of a chain. I see. It's a kind of a nice leathery franchise. But yeah, no, the DC one is defunct now. That's a shame. Yeah. You were not allowed to go with open-toed shoes. In, in yeah, no, I, I remember the group of, well, I, I mean, I don't think we were all straight, but I mean, we were a, a mixed group that uh, sort of invaded from the then-adjacent Capital Fringe Festival oh, right. HQ oh, down the block. And it was tradition for the Fringe staff to, on closing night of the festival, abandon their own party and go down the block to the, the Eagle. So a bunch of us went over there on a, on a quiet Sunday night. You know, the, the regulars or whoever is usually there on a Sunday were, were nice enough about having a, a bunch of interlopers, tourists, whatever, show up in their bar. They're used to but, it, yes. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I do, I do recall that a couple of ladies were declined entry for their open-toed shoes. Yep. In fairness, there's a lot of Doc Bartons. There's a lot of big, heavy, steel-toed boots. You know? uh, so it's just, they're looking out for them. All right. This episode, Hama and Danville, starts at the hospital. Number 73 has attempted suicide. This scene exists to establish <laughs> that number two is over and above baseline mean. Mm-hmm. Like he's malicious. He's cruel. Right. He is also, and this will become important later on, a brill creamed to a fairly well. He has a very slick uh, hairstyle that will turn out to be important. Six is walking close enough to the hospital that he can hear her scream when uh, number two turns on her. Right. Here's her scream inside the hospital. And and a few floors... Well, she's got to be on the third floor, right? Because she did manage... I mean, we went through this with uh, Cobb in Arrival, who turned out not to be dead, whose suicide attempt was faked. But hers is real. So I guess she did successfully dive from the window... Well, I think what happened is we've established that there is a gravity well outside, immediately outside the windows of the hospital that causes bodies that fling themselves out of windows to hyper-accelerate to terminal velocity. That is the only explanation. Anyone pitching themselves from the third floor window needs to take care not to accidentally strike any of the copious shrubs and and landscape (laughs) features that dot the perimeter of the hospital, which could break your fall and and interfere with your... uh, attempted self-termination. No. And see, here's the thing. Uh, So Six hears her scream. He rushes in. And by the way, he runs. Have I asked you yet uh, on on this podcast on the air if 
you a lifelong runner. How's his form? He runs a lot on this show. Have, are you well, able to say whether he pronates or supinates? I, I, think, I think he runs a little more of the way I run now, uh, a year out from knee surgery, where uh-huh. uh, I have been advised to take smaller strides and, and more of them. So my uh-huh. my cadence is up and my stride is, is shrunk to reduce pressure on the knee. I cool, cool. feel much more self-conscious running now because I think I... I probably look the way he does when he's running, and I and I also feel like I'm consciously pumping my arms more. Sure. So uh, I I feel sillier, and I am I'm far more reluctant to make judgments about okay. the right. the running forms of of others, especially uh, those younger than myself, as uh, as Patrick McGowan was. That's true. He was. Yes, yes. 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 He was. Okay. So he storms into her room. We see him go up. I think it's precisely one flight of stairs. Am I wrong there? Does he go up more than one? Because I think it's just the one. Right. We do see him from the back. So it might it might be Frank Mayer, his double. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I did confirm that McGowan did return to Port Marion for a, a weekend in the spring of 67 to do some pickups for this. Mm-hmm. But, but there is a lot of his double even in the non-stunt sequences. No, sure. So the sequence of events here is that... Six rushes into her hospital room, which has some lovely daffodils, um, which I, I thought was yeah. really, really nice for the village to do that for somebody. Yeah, or maybe number two sent those. Maybe he was mm-hmm. trying the carrot before the, the stick. I, I want to back up for a second and sure. say that scene where we're introduced to the, the cargo number two, establishing his cruelty, he is implying to number 73 that her husband was unfaithful. Her, mm-hmm. The husband whose location he is trying to discern from mm-hmm. her. Like, that's that's the piece of information he wants mm-hmm. to extract. Mm-hmm. And he is holding this photograph that we only see the back of, and then we see it from a distance that he suggests is of her husband and his lover. Mm-hmm. Let me show you just how loyal your dear husband is to you. They look quite at home together. Would you like to know the date, place? Look. But we don't see this photo and the way he's playing it up. I so desperately wanted a cut to like a photograph of Bert and Ernie together. Or, <laughs> <laughs> he just built up the photo so much and then we, yeah. then we don't see it. It was a real tease. It's a real down. tease. So two snittily informed six. You shouldn't have interfered, number six. Can we back up the tape here. How did he interfere? Because this woman was going to throw herself out the window regardless. And she did. And she She was already in the... Well, she slit her wrists, right? Mm -hmm. Number two says that that was her first unsuccessful suicide attempt. said slash. The word slash came in there. Colorful, colorful word, yes. Unclear what exactly number two is trying to do to her that causes her to scream and sends six flying up the stairs, bursting into her room. And then she does the header out the window. Yeah. I just, I don't understand what was happening there. There's a reading of this where Six's entrance distracts number two enough that she can, she's got a moment where she can break away and throw herself out the window. Um, But it's not clear what the hell's going on there. I mean, if that's it, we need to see the photograph. (laughs) <laughs> and then we need a shot of her reacting to the photograph. We need yeah. to see her accepting that what number two is telling her is true and she can't handle it. That would make her suicide a little more intelligible dramatically. No, sure. Here's the thing that happens. Two inform six. That You'll pay for this. You will. So, I mean, we are... Two minutes into this episode, so points for efficiency for setting up the central yeah. dynamic, the mm-hmm. the that we're that will kind of drive this entire episode. But 
Wouldn't it be great if it was done without fridging a woman? I mean, yes, it was the time, but like we are killing a woman to make number six feel like he needs to do be a white knight dude. It's like yeah. it's well, you so know, much I, of its time. I mean, I think it's true to his character. If if there's one thing that number six hates more than having a woman around, <laughs> having a woman speak to him, having a woman clean his apartment because it's her job. To be fair, a younger uh, woman. He doesn't care okay. for the younger woman, yes. Well, the only thing he appreciates less than that is when a, a younger woman is being wronged. Yeah. And he happens to be walking by. Happens to be walking by, which we've established the hospital is pretty far outside the village. So this is a long amble he's going on. This is basically a hike he's going on. That's a long mini moke ride to the hospital from the village. Well, then he hiked after this. He gets home. Number two calls and summons him. And he says, no, we have nothing to talk about. And then we cut to some country road where mm-hmm. he's uh, shuffling along. He appears to have made it quite some distance. Now, yep. this incredible fight scene where the three stripy shirt goons uh, yep. tackle him, take him into custody, drag him on the, the mini moke. that was at MGM. That was just right outside the studio. Yep, sure. <laughs> but of course uh, it, was. it certainly looks like a part of the village that we haven't seen before. Right. I mean, it kind of looks like when, in many happy returns, the village was abandoned and he takes the mini moke to the section right. where he looks out over the mountains. Uh, it's mm-hmm. kind of the same thing. The person driving the mini moke that the three stripy goons get out of. So it's the head goon, his Bob the mm-hmm. goon, if you will, is yes. number 14, who doesn't speak in this episode for a long time. He's just kind of there looming. It is a shame that uh, numbers have mostly replaced names in the village because this actor's name is Basil Hoskins. Of course it is. I it's mean, a great name. Yeah, you want to make take advantage of that if you can. Uh-huh. So they bun rush him into Two's office and Two is not hiding behind any kind of folksy, vaguely Victorian seaside resort pantomime anymore. Like, all that is gone. He is just ruthless and cruel, which is testified by the fact that instead of an umbrella, he has a sword. Yeah. Uh, A cane sword, uh, I guess it is. (laughs) Yeah. I want to pause for a moment and note that this is at least the third number 14 that we have encountered. Sheila Allen, the the doctor who made the wonder drug in A, B, and C, was a 14. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm pretty sure there was a 14 in Checkmate. Yep. So again, the way the art department is saving money on buttons is just confounding, unless these numbers have been chosen for a reason, which I don't Mm. think they have. and, and and we're going to get to a graveyard where they just put people's numbers up <laughs> as if people yeah. do not recycle these numbers yes. 24-7. I'm going to fall okay. on my face as I attempt a sports metaphor here. But, okay. uh, it's like like retiring the jersey because no one could wear Jordan's number ever it's again. Not, right? a so thing. not a there, thing. There couldn't be another number 73. She was the only one. So uh, when Six accuses Two of being a sadist, he hasn't really, like, this a is the first time he's met the guy. Sadist. A professional Like, the, he says the previous women and men who. Amateurs. 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 Uh, but, like, this is really the first time he and Six have had a conversation, unless this is actually Thorpe coming back, as, as some have posited. This is actually Thorpe kind of getting into the village. Right. And just to remind people, this would be Thorpe, the colonel's oily right-hand man from Many Happy Returns, who not believe number Six's wild story about having been abducted to this village yep. uh, when, when Six briefly found his way back to London, played by the same uh, sublimely mm-hmm. punchable-faced actor Patrick Cargill. Yep. But like mm-hmm. uh, he doesn't know like unless he's basing his judgment of two as a sadist on whatever what the hell he was doing 
to number, what is it, 47? What's the number again? 73. 73, when he went to that room. But as he accuses two of being a sadist, number two unsheaths his sword in a very sudden jerky Mm -hmm. motion that carries precisely no subtextual import at all. Thank goodness for that, Glenn. If we're going to talk subtext, I'm going to need my sublimator. Uh, Okay, uh, all right. You sure, uh, you sure don't need a, an overt limator? Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. A Sydney. A dom, a dom limator? <laughs> Perhaps. Uh, this show aired at 7.30 in the evening, Glenn, so, uh, mm. so probably not. I have an optometry question for you, though. Okay. Do blue eyes denote fearlessness? Um, maybe, right? That's a thing that he says in this, this show, uh, right? According to Fearless. Pat- Patrick McCargill. Mm-hmm. I think I just called him Patrick McCargill. <laughs> You just did call him Patrick McCargill. Uh, well, Trevor Howard would say, I'm, I'm English, not Irish. But uh, <laughs> I don't know what Cargill would say. This is what num- number two's observation. He, he seems to take notice of number six's eyes. When he is jabbing the point of a sword into the guy's face, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. first notes that the color of his eyes, and that apparently indicates he is fearless, but then he gives Six a little jab, and uh-huh. Cargill is like, oh, you, you react. You're afraid of me? No, it's a reflex. I, I have an autonomic system. If you put a sharp object in my fucking face, like there will be a muscular response to that. You don't get any points for that. Yeah, and so this, again, if it hasn't been established already, number two, not a good guy. He preens, he threatens, he causes Six to give a very good line reading of the word disgust. What is going on up there? Disgusting. Two says he's going to break. Number six, you must be anvil or hammer. Uh, I see you know your Goethe. order hammer sign. You must be anvil or hammer. Yeah, what did, what did I say? That's yeah, exactly what did, right. What did, what did Michael Phillips say? That's I mean, exactly yeah. right. Here the subtext rapidly becomes text when he says, I am going to hammer you. Which, okay. Like Harrison Ford in Witness, baby. (laughs) Uh, And then finally, uh, number two picks up the correct phone, the red and curvy phone, to speak to number one. He does so in front of number six um, because, you know, number one is calling number two. And, you know, why would he, why do they keep doing that? Why do the number Number twos keep doing that? Shouldn't they just send it to voicemail? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Everything's under control. I don't understand why they would expose themselves in that way. But that scene is there because you can see Six picking up on the tension between number one and number two, that the fact that one is checking on two, asking if he needs Mm -hmm. an assistant, perhaps. He dismisses number six. Get out. Thank you very much. And then picks up, again, the correct phone, the yellow phone that you you pick up to speak to the supervisor at control, ordering special surveillance on six. Which, like, you are already, I mean, in Dance of the Dead, you were watching this dude shave. You yeah, watch him true. sleep. You yep. were like, what other, <laughs> how much more surveilled can he get? Any suspicious activity will be reported directly to number two. Upon personally, which, personally, personally, six goes to the village shop and acts, you know, remarkably civil to the shopkeeper, who is not our usual dude. Who is not Dennis Shaw. Not no. Dennis Shaw. This shopkeeper is remarkably knowledgeable about <laughs> classical music. 
Is a? Yeah. Well, we, we've certainly established that number six is a pretentious audiophile because no, he true. asks to to hear all six copies of the, the same Bizet LP. Mm-hmm. And the shopkeeper says, they're all the same. He says, I doubt it. I doubt it. Well, clearly, there are peculiarities of, of the pressing, Glenn. He needs to check the dead wax. He's an audiophile. Is this that is a thing? new information the, about number six. Dead wax is a thing? Is that the thing, really? I had no idea what dead wax is. Is that a thing? It's the part of the, the record that doesn't have any recorded sound on it, but it has a little inscription that tells you where it was pressed and by whom and, and all that. It's, it's like the it's like this. Okay. You know, the, the license plate of your LP. Gotcha. I mean, <laughs> the shopkeeper goes off on about, you know, it takes a Frenchman. Ah, it's ex- exquisite. And it's like, do you have like a tight five, a tight chunk on like everything in the shop? <laughs> like, t- talk to me about the village beans. Yeah. Do you have like a nice, like, like, a, like a thing about, oh, yes, they're quite meatier. He gets to be Trey Graham for about 45 seconds of screen time there. And uh, it is nice to see. Uh, so he's listening to the opening bars of all six copies of Bizet's La Lisieuse, The Girl from Arles. He listens to actually four of them, and, you know, he's timing them with his watch. This takes, Chris, a minute and a half of screen time. Because he's trying to seem mysterious, right? He leaves without buying them. But he also leaves a copy of the tally-ho on which he's circled the word security. <laughs> with a question mark. And written a question mark above it. I would love <laughs> if, if, like... He picked up the tally-ho, and it didn't have the word security, so he's had to right. kind of like come up with something else like caramel or joyce. Also, I want to know, I would like a word with the copy editor of the tally-ho, mm-hmm. because the headline of the tally-ho is increase vigilance call from new number two. Mm-hmm. Increase, like that's the imperative clause, right? And increase vigilance call from there should be some punctuation in there it should be increased vigilance call from new number two. I mean, that's still a bad headline. Or increase vigilance hyphen call from number two like he's right. like that would be right. a thing that, i think you should yeah do it's no better than number six speaks his mind as yeah, headlines go that's true i mean and we're going to see that same issue of the tally ho on the next day which kind of didn't make any sense to me pay, number six pays two units two work units for a copy of the tally ho which i thought was free i i don't know if he paid for it uh he I presents think... his he presents his unit card uh, and he okay. gets his hole punches okay all right now, I'm overthinking this, but... These two co- punches closer to a free tally-ho. For a free tally-ho. The cover of the album in question uses exactly the same modified Albertus font that The Village does. <laughs> so what? what's going on here? Is there a graphic designer who kind of stops all incoming cargo and says, nope, sorry, we got to repackage this? The label, it's not even just the, the sleeve. Like on the, the LP itself, on the record, there is a penny-farthing bicycle yep. logo that perfectly fits the, the center of the, the disc. They might have a pressing plant at the village. I, it's, it's, they are serious about their house style. I'll give, give them that. <laughs> so the shopkeep reports to number two about Six's shenanigans and monkey shines, and uh, Six watches him head off to do so. And at this moment, this... We're seeing a different number six here, a very self-satisfied number six, and he does something with his mouth I do not like. It's it's a very kind of uh, thin-lined, thin-lipped smile as he sees the shopkeep going off. Can you give us a time code on this, Glenn? Because I, I want our listeners to know exactly what you're what you're talking about. It's when the shopkeep closes up the shop and goes carrying the records up to number two's green dome. There's a shot of him just kind of standing there, and it's I I, I do not I do not think okay. self-satisfaction is a good look on number six. Okay, this is, is going to have to go on our Insta. Cool. 
the shopkeeper reports number two is puzzled and again yes you're, you're absolutely right that's when we see that the, the label on the center of the record is a penny farthing bicycle so yes there is some yeah which is not the label on the prisoner soundtrack lp that i have by the way although that would be cool it would look good i wish i wish they'd done that so here's my thing chris when i was a kid i loved this episode i now realize that this episode never escalates never heightens it just reiterates Six does something squirrely. We see somebody reporting that Six just did something squirrely. The person to whom Six did something squirrely is confronted by number two, and number two wigs out. This happens conservatively six times in this episode. (laughs) And nowadays, what one might do if one were a screenwriter is cut out the whole... (laughs) somebody reports to number two bit because obviously they do like we we don't learn anything it doesn't Mm -hmm. escalate it doesn't heighten we just get it over and over again so i suspect that this episode came in way under time and so they decided that they would dramatize every step in every process of of this and (laughs) my the reason i know i'm right about this is uh one word kosho uh, we get a random, <laughs> we'll come to it, we'll come to it, but we're, we get a random village sport. It's the sport for us, Glenn. Ah, it doesn't it's make any, we'll come to it, we'll come to it, but it, like, why <laughs> are we seeing this now? So, yep. number two is spying on number six as he writes a note in his own uh, apartment. He sends number 14 to nose around number six's apartment. Yes, to, to burgle number six's flat like the Hamburglar. In white pants, yes. And gets the sheet of paper that was underneath the sheet of paper that Six wrote his note on. All right, so clearly they did the like the pencil scratch thing where you yeah. read the impressions on the, on the notepad. Well, no, they don't bother with that because they have a special machine, a very highly specific machine. So 14... Right, but I'm saying it's the same idea. It's like the same you idea. Can, you can discern what was written on the sheet of paper above this sheet by some somehow. Absolutely. And and then uh, 2 doesn't want 14 to see it, so he dismisses 14, puts the sheet of paper in a machine that reveals the note that 6 was writing. Uh-huh. My first thought with this is, okay, this is some weirdly specific technology. This is some, like, bat world leader rehydration machine. They didn't have transparency things in your school? They but didn't this is have the thing. overhead I, projectors with the little transparency sheet and the dry erase marker? That I now realize it's that? just an overhead projector, but like they were so <laughs> impressed with it. They were so impressed with it. They took so much time to show us him feeding it into the machine. So the note in question reads, 2X04, ref your query via Bizet record. Yep. Number two's instability confirmed. Detail report follows D6. And my favorite thing about this note is that, A, uh, 6 has some very precise handwriting. It just doesn't surprise me. D- that is not a man's handwriting. Okay, I come would, on. I would stake my very reputation on it. That, that, is, is, that, is, that is a lady's hand. That is some gender essentialist that bullshit. A, no, I, no, That no. is a feminine hand. Just just based on everything I have ever encountered in my life, every every note I ever got in my locker. Okay. I think, I think that was a, a woman's handwriting. I'll give you this much. It is a very cute way of writing uh, number two. It's a big N and a little tiny O kind of Uh floating up next to the top of the N and then two. I'd like no two. It's very cute. Uh, They spy on six as he goes for a night stroll, a day for night stroll, frankly. Uh, He goes down to the beach where he leaves an envelope on the stone boat. They retrieve it. And after two, once again, dismisses 14 because he doesn't want any, any eyes. Uh, he finds it's just three sheets of seemingly blank paper. 
He calls the laboratory where number 263 answers. That has uh-huh. got to be the highest number we've come across yet, right? I believe all of the beauticians were in the, the 260s, the beauticians who worked over Flapjack Charlie wow. Curtis. They were yep. in the 240s or the 260s. But in the lab, in the lab, we have someone who is 243, someone who is 283. There does not. Ah, okay. And I think 283 might even be senior to 243, huh. Glenn. So this is where I am going to just, I, I can take it no longer. I can abide no longer your fallacious assertion mm. that fallacious, F-A-L-L-A-C-I, I don't know. There's no E anywhere in that. Good, good to know. That the the numbers connote importance. I I I can't. I mean, uh, the queen in checkmate was an eight. Mm-hmm. She was eight. It has to do with the amount of information they had before coming to the village. It has to do with the importance, the the security of the information they had before coming to the village. That's all it means. I maintain. I guess, but the, I mean, the head psychi- the head of psychiatry at the hospital, the head of psychiatrics, is two hundred forty nine. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So yep. he's less important than the the ladies who fixed Charlie Curtis's mustache. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that was a big that was a big mission. Yeah, that's but very he's important. He's the head of psychiatrics. In a place where they are trying to extract information from reluctant subjects from their brains, he's the head of psychiatrics, and he is the 249th most important person. The numbers might mean something, but they are not a simple numerical reflection of one's relative importance. That reading cannot be sustained from the evidence that... I I disagree, Chris. I quote number two. She may be a mere number 48. What does that mean if not the lower you go, the higher you go, the lower your, your importance? Look, man, I had to memorize uh, police radio code when I was a campus parking lot protector back in the day. Those numbers are totally random and arbitrary. They don't mean shit. I want to hear so much more about that, but not right now. Okay. (laughs) Okay. All right. So number two snaps at the scientist. We're starting to see fingerline cracks in the porcelain of number two. They feed the papers, the blank papers, into what looks... An awful lot, like a ham radio, frankly, uh, and they find nothing. All of this is eating uh-huh. so much screen time. 263 <laughs> reports back, too gross suspicious. We could just say too gross suspicious is a kind of verbal macro that we could just plug in, in t- uh, repeatedly on this thing. This is not quite as good as the all the business with the cuckoo clock, which, yep. which is my favorite time-stretching oh my uh, God. technique. And this, it's <laughs> so there's, many inserts of this fucking clock. There's lots of clock, <laughs> lots of clock stuff. Six places an ad in the tally-ho. Which I, I love that. I love that you can do a missed connections in the tally-ho. And, and that uh, three words will run you one work unit. And I allowed myself to get worked up because it is the same issue of the tally-ho that was on sale the day before. And it's like, what is going on here? And then I remembered, then I remembered that the new issue of the tally-ho comes out at noon. Right. So it could be the morning of the day. So I, I just got to have to... Yeah. Chill out. Do you, do you know what time a degree absolute comes out, Glenn? Uh, it comes out at noon every day, doesn't it? Noon every Wednesday? Glenn, it comes out at midnight. It comes out at 12.01 a.m. Uh, because it's an event. <laughs> it's true. It's an event. It's a fan event. An event absolute. That's right. I want to, to have a pretentious aside here. And, and Good. Oh, where, just, where oh. if not here, the bit where number 14 
Basil Hoskins is following Six. Six knows he's being followed, so he's, he's gone his way to the stone boat to mm-hmm, deposit mm-hmm. his secret envelope of blank paper. 14 is following Six. Two is following 14. 14 is relaying by radio, by enormous radio, everything that Six is doing. Mm-hmm. Even though Six ain't doing much. And it just struck me how anyone following anyone is instantly a story, right? A person out for a walk is just, there's just nothing there. There's no tension. They're just out for a walk. Mm-hmm. But when one person is following another person, like we instantly have conflict. We instantly build curiosity. You know, there's an agenda. There's there's intention. There's just all you got to do is have one person following another person. And that's it. Now you, now you got a thing. Now you got a, a movie by um, Chris Nolan. Christopher yes, Nolan, his first movie, Following, mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. David Thewlis. Good David Thewlis. He places a line from Don Quixote in the personal column. And then he calls the head of psychiatrics at the hospital and inquires after a report on number two. And then, again, this is... Psychiatrics, a, a, a mere number 249. Fine, okay. whatever, whatever. Ah, yes, doctor. Uh, what's the verdict... Um, on our friend. 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 Who is this? Uh, your report on number two, Doctor. Number two? What are you talking about? Who? Who is this speaking? I understand. You would rather not talk on the telephone. Probably very Number wise. two calls a very puzzled doctor into his office and plays him the tape, and they just make a meal out of this. He plays him the tape on a machine the size of a Buick Roadmaster, and then there's this extended bit with the oscilloscope, voice pattern matching. <laughs> Good to, God, this yep. is taking forever. We devote probably a minute of screen time to establishing that the voice that I said was your voice is your voice. Is your voice. Uh, it's like, <laughs> is, was this cutting-edge technology at the time, so they needed to explain it, or mm, were they just trying to chew through but time? But I find number two's assertion that voices are like fingerprints, no two are alike. <laughs> Not sure I think that's true. One reason this scene goes on as long is to show number two's dissolution, and Cargill's great at doing that. Mm. He is modulating his performance so that it it's not zero to 60. He is puttering along at about 20 miles an hour right about now. Uh, and it's also to show off this amazing technology and a, an oscilloscope, you say. Uh-huh. So all these accusations fly, and then he says, um, would you like to sit in this chair? And I'm sorry, I just kind of thought, um, yeah, I kind of yeah, would. Of yeah, of course. Yeah, right. It would be kind of cool. <laughs> I don't know what I'd do with my knees. Uh, I don't know if they'd fit in there, but like. No, I, want, I mean, I, we are not all of us Leo McKern who can uh, it's a thing. Just, just fold our entire lower kinetic chain into a geometric shape that fits that chair perfectly. I want to press a few buttons. I want to summon chairs. I want to I want to just, uh-huh. you know, figure out what the mm-hmm. red button does. I mean, uh, yeah, I want to I want to call what, the mm-hmm. green phone. What's the green phone do? Well, you want to measure that red phone. I want to measure that red phone. So the next morning, um, Six goes up to the band leader and the town goes up to the DJ and says, Hey, Mr. <laughs> DJ, put a record on. I want to dance with my baby. Yeah. Uh, he asks him to play the Farandole from the mm-hmm. Lanzian Suite. Uh, the Farandole is the conclusion of that particular piece of music. It is a traditional folk dance that is associated with married couples. Hmm. Um, right. And the band leader has a very cool reversed badge. He's one of those people with the black badge. The black with white badge, letters, right. Black yeah. and white, very stylish. Oh, he's, he's, a, he's a musician, you know. They're, yep. they're eccentric, Glenn. They're, they're well, like this, landscape, landscape architect. This also might be relevant because he also has a pretty prominent cold sore, which, you know, not, not <laughs> no shame, but like that's, it's just a thing that you 
you notice. He's been down to the beach. He's been village. down to the uh, beach. He's he's kind of <laughs> taken a taken a few turns in the stone boat. Um, number two explodes at him. Uh, you're, it's a, it's a plot. You're going behind my back. Who do they think they're dealing with? Pygmies. <laughs> and yep. and I, I this is the point where I turned on the subtitles because I thought it sounded like he said pygmies, and he did. Well, that's because you have the Blu-ray. If you have the Amazon closed captioning on, which I does, uh, which I did, uh, <laughs> which, <laughs> if you have the Amazon closed captioning on, which your, I did, your Cookie Monster syntax. There. Yes, yes, yes. Me you did just do your your Muppets episode. Can me me play Devil's Advocate? So uh-huh. if you have the Amazon closed captioning on, as I did, it says, "Who do you think they're dealing with?" Pickmeres, which is a village near Nutsford. That was the network TV. I suppose. Too hot for TV. That was the flip you. Yes. Your mother knits socks that smell. Yes. It's the same same thing. Yeah. One of of the uh, great features on the Criterion Blu-ray of Repo Man, as I was reminded recently while studiously over-preparing to interview that film's writer-director, Alex Cox, about The Prisoner, friend of the show, past and future guest, Mm -hmm. Alex Cox, is you you can watch the network TV version where they, they had to take out so much of it because you know profanity of course but also abundant drug use yep. um that they ended up filling it out with outtakes and so they first got the the censorship cut and the feature film was now like 51 minutes long <laughs> so they're like well yep. we have a bunch of scenes that we cut that don't have drugs in them so yep. they're going back in it was the snyder cox cut of, uh, <laughs> of repo man less mopey more radiation so uh, Six visits 73's grave. Uh, the daffodils that were in her hospital room are now atop her grave. This is a real, intentionally or not, it's a real for your eyes only cold open moment where we he goes to visit his grave. And then he notices 113, 113's grave, which uh, yeah. it, these numbers do not get right. retired. They just get recycled endlessly, ceaselessly. Okay. So you didn't immediately in- infer that there was a lover's quarrel between 113 and 113B that turned violent? Oh, hey. Because that's, that's what I got from this. Was there a 113B? Was, was the... the was 100 in free-for-all, yes. Are uh, you six kidding me? interviewed by 113 and the photographer 113B. Uh, and and we remarked upon their low value, high numbers at the time. Of course, that was before we met all these fucking two forties who we right. have subsequently encountered since then. Journalism is a stressful profession. We sure. know this. We can we can see how how uh, certainly a couple in which both partners were journalists. That's that's a recipe for strife in a relationship. I think. But uh, I mean, they just it. made like the seven badges. That must be it. That must be the answer. <laughs> they just made seven badges and just kept recycling them. That's crazy. Yeah. Generally, and certainly for the time, the production values of this show are astonishingly high. Yeah. Right? I mean, yeah. this show looks great 54 uh-huh. years later. The fact that it was shot on 35 millimeter film in color, you know, when we're seeing it more vividly than, than the people who first saw it saw it. I mean, it was broadcast in black and white in England mm-hmm. in 1967, you know, and it looks magnificent. So I don't know. You got you to gotta pinch those pence somewhere, and I, I guess suppose. they... They did it on badges. There is a simple primal power to number two's office. Every time I see it, it just makes mm-hmm. me so fucking happy just to look at that, just the, the contrast, just the symmetry. The, the, from a pure design perspective, it is so clean and cool. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it, it never, loses its, uh, never loses its power. So anyway, 
six, going to the, to the graveyard, piques number two's interest, and he strolls across the village. They go from the Green Dome to Control. I had always assumed they were in the same building. I didn't realize that you have to kind of schlep across the village to get from number two's office to the place with the seesaw. Uh, but the, he walks across the village. That's what he does. Oh, did I not? I meant to tell you that there is in one of these books. It might be this book. It might be the Robert Fairclough, Faircloth, <laughs> Robert F., official companion to the classic TV series, The Prisoner, publication date 2002. I thought this was the one that had a map of the village in it, Glenn. I was so excited to, I meant to, to share this with you much earlier because I know how you love a, you love a map. I love but, a map. Uh, now, he does take a leap here. I already threw this up on our, our Instagram account. Mm-hmm. The Prisoner's Village, it says uh, beneath the, the title of this map, from the files of M9, a detailed plan of the holding facility for, for recalcitrant agents. Ah, hmm. so we're taking a big hmm. leap there, actually. You know, and we are. We are. They don't seem. There's a lot of people like the old lady who likes sweets. She doesn't seem. Particularly I, I agree. You know, no. but we're we're saying flat out that that all these people are former spies. I mean, couldn't they mm-hmm. be? You know, various other sorts of dissidents or, or people who need to be kept out of general population for for other reasons. Mm-hmm. And like, I think some of the people we see here are like too young to be retired intelligence operatives. No, I think they just have access to information that, for whatever reason, they are being yeah. sequestered. Yeah. I think that's kind of the deal there. It's a very pretty, it's a very pretty uh, map. It, not all of it makes a lot of sense to me. The legend doesn't list point six as number six's apartment, which yeah, yeah, that's true. Uh, if you're doing, if uh, you're doing. six um, on the map is uh, offices, mortuary, and number one telex room. And it, and it references Doesn't Dance of the sense. Dead as, uh, yeah, so I guess that's, that's, that's where. That's the thing with, like, that's our wacky printer with the yep. But, yeah, I, I always thought that the, the control room, the seesaw, was, was there in the green dome. Now, according to, to this map, and I hope this is based on something, maybe a production design drawing or, or an actual map of Port Marion. Mm, I don't think it is. Yeah, I you think this is not. just uh, some <laughs> some real fan art freelancing? The yep. All right. Well, well, on this this uh, possibly suspect map, the control room is adjacent to the green dome, and it looks like there is a subterranean tunnel that connects them. So mm. if there's a you know on a day where, what are you are you giving me that look because? So why wouldn't they just walk? Why? I'm just saying um, they would need to walk across the village to yeah. go there if it was. It, it was looks like you can go outside and them. stretch your legs and enter the control room. Actually, actually, this it looks to me like there is a single entrance to the control room and it is only reachable via via tunnel. So I think you could. I mean, you could okay. leave the green dome and re-enter the green dome, but I don't think you could go. I think we've seen number two walk out of his office in his home and then just go right to the control room. I think that's a thing we've seen. Yeah, happen, it, it looks so. like it looks like you could do that. So um yeah, so I guess Cargo just he just wanted to go outside for a minute. That's that's all. Yep. Uh-huh. Just wanted to get uh-huh. some air. Uh to take in the miasma. <laughs> anyway, uh once he gets to control, he starts throwing out accusations. He fires the supervisor who is serving you some <laughs> serious puppy dog eyes here. This is a real moment for it's Peter a real Swanwick, moment. who, who we, we have only so far seen say orange alert. Orange alert. Orange. And he gets to do some acting here. He's he gets, frightened, he's but frightened. he's also sad. What does a supervisor do when he is 
no longer needed to supervise. Yep. He's, he's just a visor. He's, he loses his super. <laughs> he's an ordinary visor. He's an ordinary visor. Uh, so he, uh, so number two screams, I'll break this conspiracy. Crack, crack, crack. More cracks in the porcelain. So the next day, the ad that Six placed in the tally-ho, there is more harm in the village than is dreamt of, appears. And um, 14 has had enough of this. He's seen his boss crack, and he's like, let me, let me, just, let me just take him out. Let me just dispose of him yep. so it looks like an accident. And <laughs> Two walks out of his office into the kind of very fusty foyer of the Green Dome uh, with the 14. He doesn't answer 14 about like whether or not yep. he wants to off number six. And then six shows up at the Green Dome saying that two summoned him. Two turns to go back into his office and shoots this amazing look at number 14. Uh, just a dart of the eyes, a very Sam the Eagle shift of the eyes right? Uh, to kind of say, yep, go ahead, take him out. Right, keeping, preserving his deniability, but unmistakably giving the order. Mm-hmm. And then uh, they challenge each other, they get up in other's faces, and then number six says the word we've all been at, waiting for him to say, Kosho. Wait a minute, you're, you're not going to give us the uh, provocation? That makes number six opt for the nuclear option and propose Kosho? Uh, I don't remember what it is. What is it? A troublemaker, number six. Do you know what I'd like, really like? To dust you down. I'd really enjoy that. Oh, no, stop again. Kosho? I challenge you. I accept. I'd like to dust you down. Yeah, not a thing. Not a thing. Not Dust you down like Jay-Z brushing his shoulders off. I am going to hammer you. Um, so, yeah, kosho. Now, kosho, Chris, is a Japanese chili citrus paste. It is also... Is it? Yes, it is. I can't believe these these racist Brits thought they could name a sport after such an honorable uh, right. condiment. It's Yeah, it came very close to being called ponzo, but it decided, no, let's go with kosho. This sport, such as it is, is... What, it's wrestling on trampolines? That's pretty much it? I don't know when Nickelodeon went on the air, but this seems like a made-for-Nickelodeon <laughs> sport. With the, the two trampolines, there is a bucket of water in the middle. They wear helmets. They wear jumpsuits like they are going to be jumping out of an airplane. Yep. It is the goofiest thing. And I, I read an excerpt from a script, which is like, as they play this game, it's clear that they are not following kosher rules. And I'm like, well, how could we possibly, <laughs> yeah, how right. could we possibly glean that <laughs> no, from clearly. just two dudes no. wrestling on trampolines? It has become a deadly game. And it's like, ah, it's... clearly a moment when uh, number 14 is going to sweep the leg and yeah. play some dirty kosher. <laughs> and this whole scene ends after what? 45 seconds when another couple is like, can we play through? We did put our quarters on the table, you guys. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> how long is a kosho game if people can just barge in? They were barely a minute. It's less than a minute. Now, we will see kosho again in It's Your Funeral coming back. Thank God. Uh, but I don't. It is the randomest thing. And then the music is problematic that accompanies this, uh, this whole sport. Very kind of Asian, atonal, kind of like, it's like, why, why, what, why are we doing some, this? Some, some short round. Uh, exactly. Uh, yeah. After that's over, uh, and apparently number 14 was prevented from killing him because other people showed up or something, 
He buys a cuckoo clock. Also because, take it from me, Glenn, it is, it is hard to fucking kill somebody on a trampoline. <laughs> it's easier to do on solid ground, buddy. This is a thing I know. I was a Cub Scout. Yes, you, like, uh, uh, trampolines are just, like, they're just death traps. They're, like, they're just, <laughs> I, I look at them and, like, that looks, nothing about that looks fun. It looks terrible. And it just, it seems so awkward where they have to get up on the railing and that's part yep. of the thing too mm-hmm. it doesn't make any sense anyway so he uh buys i don't a- know but uh given my age and and my other interests and everything i like i never understood professional wrestling never understood it thought it was dumb when i was seven mm-hmm. i still think it's hella dumb i don't know yeah there is a thing that happens to you in your youth when you either go down a wrestling path or a comics path that you're dealing with this exactly the same thing very simple archetypes mm-hmm. in conflict yeah but I know comics people and I know wrestling people and there's overlap certainly there's overlap but like it's the people who become passionate about wrestling tend not to become passionate about comics and people who become passionate about comics tend not to be that passionate a, about wrestling. That is a fascinating dichotomy. I think so. It's it's not really a dichotomy because again there's lots of overlap and I, I don't want people yeah. to write in saying uh, but I'm both. Many people are both. Many people are neither but uh, I just it's a thing I noticed. Hmm. So he buys a cuckoo clock um, for the box that it comes in. The Village Stores offers an impressive selection of cuckoo clocks, classical recordings, and in this case... And beans, and village beans. Sure, the power beans, magical beans, beans mm-hmm. that will sustain you indefinitely, mm-hmm. uh, like space mission beans or, you know, sea voyage beans. Weirdly for this show, we get some really nice, fresh-looking produce in the That's Village true. Shops. It yep. does not look bad at all. Mm-hmm. I think that was all the produce in England at this time. Yeah. <laughs> they, they gathered it on the day. And, of course, we get the report. And the thing that makes it suspicious that he bought a cuckoo clock to the shopkeep is that he didn't go with the one that the shopkeep recommended to him, which no. is just a very thin-skinned shopkeep. You can't be in sales and be that thin-skinned. The customer is always right, and you have to defer to yeah. what the customer wants. So later on, he traps a pigeon in the box with a peanut butter sandwich on the in, on the whitest bread imaginable. It's, is it peanut butter? I, I think it's peanut it was, butter. I, okay. I, I you think it was, it was liverwurst? Some, you some think? kind of pseudo meat, but mm. uh, I, I don't know. To me, it was peanut butter, but I okay. would assume because I was right. thinking. You can't mess up peanut butter. Right? No, I bet true. Like even, even the village peanut butter is probably great. It's probably, you have to probably have to mix it. It's probably got one of those ones that's not oh, emulsified, so you have to do the like, oil thing. Like Trader Joe's peanut butter. Yeah, it's gross. Takes the cuckoo clock to the Green Dome, two assumes it's a bomb, as you would. I mean, I'm not, I, don't, I can't blame the guy. This is like, it's yeah. a clock. Uh, I think we're going to get another clock in It's Your Funeral. I think there's going to be another clock thing involved there, if I remember correctly. Will this clock be intercut with a uh, pulse-pounding scene of pigeon capture? Very likely not. Uh, <laughs> okay. Weird. Well, that makes it inferior. We are just padding this thing out. Like, I think <laughs> maybe somebody had a story credit, like, number six does shenanigans that makes number two think he's a plant. Like, that's the story. But the execution of this is just repeating the same dynamic over yeah. and over again. Okay. There's a lot of... Falderall with bomb diffusing while Six is taking a pigeon out to the forest via the mangrove walk. Why, why, why is that a piece of information we need? Uh, he writes a series of numbers on a piece of paper and attaches it to the pigeon, lets it go. But, no fear, the village has a contingency plan for pigeons. <laughs> <laughs> involving a beam? A beam. Yes, they, they have a particle beam uh, <laughs> anti-aircraft weapon. Track that bird. 
Tracking, sir. Beam. Beam on, sir. One, one guy in the control room is ready to just fucking smoke this pitch. And number two is like, no, minimum power. Minimum strength. Set it to stunned. I need to interrogate that pigeon. I need prisoners. Because they wanted to talk. Exactly. What do you think you're doing? But sir, that pigeon, number six, is sending a message. Focus, try bring it down. I want that message. Be minimum strength. Minimum strength, sir. You want to set this guy up as a bad guy. You make him fry the bird is what you do. You don't make him yep. go, oh, and then you show the little, <laughs> little kind of slightly dazed pigeon later like, oh, what was going on? I don't, oh, I, everything's going white. Okay, but uh, when, when we get to the bomb disposal, I, I did appreciate there was some process-based seeming authenticity in this. So much time, Chris, so much bomb time. Tech, he is in a bunker. He is surrounded by sandbags. I love that this bomb disposal technician, after he dismantles the cuckoo clock and finds the spring with the little wooden bird inside, mm-hmm. he holds it up to show number two and gives number two this smug look like you're a fucking idiot. I can't yeah. believe you made me do this. The number of the bomb disposal tech, Glenn, 243. Yeah. Oh, this what? argues for my interpretation of the numbers, not yours, because Uh this guy is pretty important, right? And I mean, now you're saying that the number is based on their knowledge, what caused them to be abducted in the first place, right? Right? Not their hierarchy within the village. Exactly. Mm, Okay. I don't know. I still think when you, like the bomb disposal guy is is six ranks ahead of the the head of psychiatrics at the hospital that... Sure, but here's the thing, Chris, what you're ignoring the fact is that a bomb disposal guy is not important most of the time. Until there is a bomb, and then he becomes very important. Then he's extremely important, Glenn. What happened when Murtaugh and Riggs didn't wait for the bomb squad, Glenn? I I don't know what we're talking about now. What happened when Riggs and Murtaugh decided they would just try to disarm the bomb themselves? This is a little weapon thing. Not wait for the bomb squad. Okay, fine. Yeah, another totally virgin reference. To uh, <laughs> that you've never, yes, you've never hit before. I, I and you not never on this again. goddamn show. I haven't. I mean, maybe we'll get back there when we do our inevitable Braveheart episode. Oh my but, god, uh, that's gonna suck! <laughs> Yay, homophobia! We're uh, always there, you know, dissing the the bomb text. <laughs> I'm not always there dissing the bomb. It's always like on your high horse here about how lobotomies are always wrong in every situation. Yep. I stand by it. Stand by it. <laughs> a hill Regardless I die of on. the circumstances, uh, <laughs> mutilating one's brain, you say, is never the appropriate solution. Never. It's a lack of imagination on your part, Glenn. I do like the fact that Bomb Tech gets no lines, but he doesn't need him because he conveys his disgust. Uh, it's a great look. With a great I, look. With yeah. a great look as he kind of makes the uh, the dude. Um, also, we never see the beam <laughs> this vaunted beam. We barely even see the firing mechanism. It comes out of a flagpole, aims, <laughs> and then antenna, nothing. Whole yeah. bunch of nothing. We, Do we and get like, a sound? We don't get a sound. We get nothing. Oh, man. He says <laughs> they don't cut corners. Remember like this whole thing in the early part of uh, like yeah. Patrick McGoon says, we will not call it television because people on television cut corners, and we will never cut corners. Uh, this is a quarter. It was a big, big time cut. Big time cut. Well, yeah, until it comes down to having to shoot something completely impossible, like cutting a tree down. Mm-hmm. You know, and then yep. we can't film a real dinosaur, Glenn. We we have to get the special <laughs> effects team involved, so uh, we need to borrow some logging B-roll. Number two takes the message off of the pigeon, uh, the poor dazed and confused <laughs> pigeon. I know. And it's 20, 60, 40, 47, 67, 81, 91, 80. You think it's going to be gibberish? Oh, no. 
oh no, it's not gibberish because tradecraft. It is vital message tomorrow, 0600 by visual signal. They go to the commercial Mm -hmm. by number two going visual signal. Like that's Mm -hmm. important. The next morning, Six walks down to the beach. He takes his very ornate and I mean, I, you were just gender essentialist, so I feel I can be gender essentialist here. A very ladylike hand mirror. And uh, flashes Morse code uh, to, and the supervisor panic because it turns out the signal he's sending is pat a cake, pat a cake, bake as man, bake me a cake as fast as you can. Uh, he takes it to his code expert who says, like, yeah, the computer says there's nothing here. It's just, you know. <laughs> Stretch it out. Stretch it. It's, <laughs> Stretch it. There is nothing but time being padded into this episode. All of this could have been done in two minutes. The shot of number six with the mirror signaling out that there's a nice close-up of him, uh, and it is a great hero shot where he's on the beach and his hair is blowing a little bit. Yep, and I yep, thought yep. they were going to show it again because it's a great shot. And it, it is, seems actually. like the kind of still that you would want to repurpose endlessly because he looks very heroic. Yep. And they only give it to us the once. Yep. So this laboratory slash code decrypting room that they're in is like many rooms in the under kind of carriage of the village, which has circular doorways, like Uh giant uh circular hallways. And as he's leaving, number two basically trips on the bottom of the circular entryway because it looks cool. But it's terrible ergonomics. It is yep. just terribly mm-hmm. inefficient ergonomics. In the future, right angles will be obsolete. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> that you, you cut off the angles like you're in Battlestar Galactica. So six spots, 14 having breakfast the next morning, goes up to him and talks in a way that's full of portent, but is about, you know, the wind on your face and the whatever, uh, knowing <laughs> for a fact that the twink waiter will report them and, in fact, won't even go inside to report them. He will go around the corner to the payphone <laughs> and say, give me number two at once. Like, how fucking important can, can number two be when the, when the guy goes later? can get him on the phone <laughs> right away. Right? But this is the thing. We don't need to see the reporting happen because at this point, we've right. already six episodes in. We, we know mm-hmm. that, that this would get reported. So... Yep. 14 gets chewed out by two, who doesn't believe him. They're slapping. We forgot to mention that mm-hmm. uh, number two slaps six at the beginning. Oh, 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 oh. Backhands him, Glenn. Backhands him, yeah. Backhands yep. him. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is the moment when number two's brill cream disappoints him, and his wings go flying in the breeze. Uh, he dismisses 14. He dismisses the butler, which seems like a... Kind of a grievous breach of etiquette. He raises his arm like he's going to backfist the butler for a second. Yep, yep, yep. I love that the butler just looks at him puzzled. The butler does not cower, does not flinch. He just looks at him like, this is strange. What are you doing? Yeah, exactly. Uh, yep. It's a nice moment. Fourteen then storms into Six's apartment, who is just chilling, read, listening to some music, because music calms the mind, <laughs> and accuses number Six of putting the poison in, which, again, we don't need to get into the subtext here, um, and says that because of what number six did, he's finished. Number 14 is finished. And then he tries to kill six with his fist by, by telegraphing the fact, by saying, I'll kill you. Tussle this on the bed. This is a very sweet move, though. 14 throws a punch at a reclining six. Like six is in a, a chaise lounge, and six dodges the punch and rolls out of the, the chaise and is on his feet. I, I actually 
couldn't tell if this was Magoon or if this was Frank Mayer, probably Frank Mayer, but uh, it was a, a deft move, certainly by the standards of, of this show. Yep, yep. I mean, you could see the punch coming, but yes, sure. Yeah, I know, but you try rolling out of a chair like that and landing perfectly <laughs> on your feet and, and upright that fast when, when someone is trying to... I mean, just try dodging a punch when you're laying down. <laughs> no, <laughs> sure, sure. doesn't seem I get too, that. too easy to do. So eventually they kind of tussle on the bed because, again, subtext, subtext. And mm-hmm. this whole scene takes place while the music is very soothing. Um, and this prefigures a trope of the incongruously, you know, soothing or upbeat music accompanying a very violent act that Kubrick uh, created in, in, I think it was Clockwork, Clockwork Orange. Clockwork Orange, yeah, mm-hmm. with the, yeah definitely. And having, uh, having Alex uh, do Singing in the Rain Absolutely, while he's yep. committing his horrible violent yep. rape. And then, help me out with this, Chris. Six tosses 14 out his balcony window, but you can still see 14's foot sticking up after he is pitched out, theoretically, the window. I don't think it's a balcony. I think it's just a ground floor. No, no, this is the the balcony. This is like him. This is the one where the maid kind of like rings out her. uh, Oh, all right. This is the balcony. This is is definitely the set of his apartment at MGM. Yes, it is. And and, and again, like I'm sure, you know, black and white standard definition, those cloth backdrops outside the window that are meant to look like outside are Mm -hmm. are probably just fine. I mean, those don't withstand the scrutiny of Blu-ray, but that doesn't matter. So fourteen, he basically kills fourteen because again, if you fall, if you fall, <laughs> just threw him through a window. Yeah, if you fall two two stories, you're dead. Is basically because of gravity wells. No one wants to go through plate glass. Like you could, you know, you get cut in the wrong place and you could bleed out pretty fast. Mm-hmm, but it, yeah. but it is weird how that always ends the fight. Yes, <laughs> it instantly yes. ends the fight. <laughs> so uh, six walks into two's office. Two is clearly broken, and there's no way to say this. Except to say that number two is basically fillating the handlebars of the penny-farthing bicycle when we see him. Hmm. And in this scene, six is in complete control, and two is cracking under the pressure. He fires off a bunch of accusations. And if he wanted, if somebody else wrote this particular episode, this is the moment that six could get anything he wanted out of this guy. The location of the village, who number one is where they import the beans from, like anything he wants, any damn thing. What if he wanted to know where the aspirins? Yes. Right. Does number two have his limits? Even, even think, in such compromised state, he would, he would give up his source for aspirins? I think he'd if, push uh, a button and the aspirins would rise up out of the floor. <laughs> and so, but instead he just, he, just, he just attempts to destroy number two. He says, Let us suppose for argument's sake that what you say is true, that I was planted here by XO4. XO4. Hmm? Very well. By XO4, to check on village security, to check on you. You were! What would have been your first duty as a loyal citizen? Not to interfere. But you did interfere. You have admitted it yourself. There is a name for that. Sabotage! If the accusations that Two is making were true, if he was truly a plant, Two should have let him do his work. And I really like what Cargill's doing here. You've destroyed me. No. You've destroyed yourself. A character flaw. You were afraid of your masters. A weak link in the chain of command waiting to be broken. Do tell them. Do report to me. I don't. 
don't intend to. You are going to report yourself. It, we've built up to this. Um, it is a complete breakdown. It's a complete dissolution. And it goes someplace. Like, he's, he's giving this to an arc that ends up here. He says, uh, when he says, uh, you're D6 and you report to X04, he is desperately proud of that information. He feels like, yes, mm-hmm, I, I figured you out. And it's right. it's so fun and sad. And uh, Six tells him that because you've destroyed yourself, you must also report yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then Six hands the curvy red number one phone to number mm-hmm. two, because mm-hmm. Six knows what's up, knows which phone goes where. And uh, two says there's been a breakdown in control and that number two needs to be replaced and collapses into tears in that very comfy looking chair. Yes. Number number 73 has been well and truly avenged. Yes. This episode was created to not impart any new information at all. Uh, it was just, it, it's a filler episode. It is the It is a filler episode about how number six is learning that he can exploit the hierarchy of the village to his own end to avenge a woman who died because it's 1967. And that's how you get your heroes to do anything is to kill a woman and have them um, adopt some kind of white knight stance. Again, as I say, I love this episode when I was a kid as an, as an older man, I see that it, it, it is just the plot putting one leaden foot in front of the other not heightening, not cr- not escalating the tension, but just doing the same thing six times without increasing in speed, without uh, doing anything to the yeah, pace. Yeah. I love that feeling of vindication that comes because, you know, we don't get a lot of that in this series. Number six is an individual and the village exists to try to crush him. And in many cases it does, or at least it, at least it, it accomplishes it in small ways. But yeah, I don't think I feel the same affection for this. And I certainly, I can't, I can't imagine watching this repeatedly as we did and not just feeling like, oh, geez, got to check my watch because now the twink waiter has to go and report to number two. It's like, geez, this is taking forever. Yeah, it, it is weird how Cargill's sort of unctuous personality in this, his, his arrogance, his cruelty to his um, subordinates and, and all that, it seems to outweigh the wrongness of of the village you know previously mm-hmm. we've gotten all these number twos who are individually very charming and we love to listen to them speak and we love the the way they pivot between threatening number six flattering number six uh trying all these these different emotional tones you know we love mary mckern we love mary mckern we love leo mckern we love mary morris and i don't know the fact that uh, cargill seems so much like a principal in the breakfast club or something. Yeah, sure. Like, he's just a dick. He's just got to stick up his ass, man. Mm-hmm. You know, that that weighs so much more than, than just the fact that this is a horrible cage built on surveillance and anyone you interact with might be a spy who's reporting on you. You don't feel the confinement or the tension of any of that. All you get is uh, Cargill, like, what a prick. Yep. It, uh, it overshadows the whole threat of the village. I mean, maybe, you know, nine, what is it, nine episodes in, that's sort of inevitable because we've been living with that for a while. But mm-hmm. it is a little out of balance. I don't know if that's a fault in, in Cargill's performance. I don't think it is. I, I think the script didn't give him much of an arc. And so he had to kind of 
impregnate <laughs> his performance with an arc because again the script mm. doesn't escalate it just iterates it just this we're doing this thing again we're doing this thing again we're doing this thing again yeah. and Cargill at least arrives at a place of complete breakdown at the end and gives you signposts that it's getting worse and worse as we keep going back to him I do think the idea of this episode is great. I think the execution of it is a little ham-fisted. And even a good actor, even a great actor like Cargill, can't quite rescue it from, uh, we, need, we, need another, we need another 45 seconds. How about Kosho? Let's throw, throw in some <laughs> random Kosho there. <laughs> I, I could do with a lot more Kosho, actually. I like I was I was not bored watching the the Kosho. I mean, trying to figure out the rules of Kosho, the origins of Kosho, the history of Kosho. Uh, it's just beating somebody up on a trampoline <laughs> is basically what Kosho is. It doesn't make any Wipe sense. Wipeout is a show, Glenn. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. How many years has that been on? Like everything about the village is this kind of quaint seaside resort from Victorian times, and then you got Kosho in the middle of it. Like why? What? I mean, every people's violent impulses have to go somewhere, Glenn. They can't get it all out on the on the beach after dark. I mean, yeah, well, some of that needs to. It could be what? What do they do uh, in in Victorian times? Bear baiting and uh, laudanum. Yeah, laudanum. And <laughs> no, yeah. Donnie Brooks. Bunch of Donnie Brooks. Uh-huh. Big mustaches and lifting weights with those giant uh, round weights. You know. Yeah, I mean, I'm I've gone back to the the source, baby. I'm a kettlebeller. Kettlebells, you know, exactly. But, uh... Okay, stop punching your microphone, Glenn. I, I'm going to cut out most of them, but I'm leaving that one in because it's like the fourth time. Mm-hmm. Our listeners would be stunned to discover which one of us is an actual full-time public radio professional. I'm going to tape your hands to the table. You are, you are just like number six. You cannot resist pounding the table. All right. What is your ranking for uh, Hammer into Anvil? You know, if you would ask me this when I was a younger man, I would definitely say six out of six. It was one of my favorite episodes. Now, I don't know this, the between the fridging and the kind of simplistic, uh, the way that number two goes off the rails, it's so, it's it's a little too linear. I'm going to give it a five out of six nowadays. I'm just, mm. a, I'm just different than I was as a youth. Okay. How about you? Mm, four out of six. Hmm. Why so low? Yeah, I'm just not comfortable with the, the I'm, I'm going to avenge this poor woman plot, but Patrick Cargill is a lot of fun. He is a lot of fun. And I like that it's number six who's waging the, the PSYOPs campaign mm-hmm. in this episode, mm-hmm. planting the seeds of distrust among number two and his subordinates. So He's jamming, yes. That's what he's doing. <laughs> he's jamming. Glenn. Chris. When you say jamming. Yeah. Are you talking about that period in the early aughts when uh, Jimmy Page briefly joined the Black Crows and they, mm-hmm, they toured mm-hmm. together? So then, like, at one point in one band, you've got Rich Robinson, Oddly Freed, and Jimmy fucking Page all playing together on, like, Custard Pie, Heartbreaker, Celebration Day. Wow. Whole lot of love. Is that listeners, you can't. That you what can't, you mean? You can't <laughs> you see this, but it. on the Zoom call, Chris <laughs> is turning into a pair of cargo shorts, <laughs> and a polo shirt, and he's he's got a little pocket protector for his uh, transition lenses. And uh, oh yeah, there's a there's a visor. He's wearing a visor. Yeah, <laughs> it's funny. He's deadening, even as we speak. 
All right, next up, it's your funeral, right? We is have that... fucked this up so many times, buddy. Are we sure? Are we sure that it's your I, funeral? Is whatever the... is next on the Amazon ranking is what we should do. And I, I think it's it's your funeral. That's an idiom, right? Mm. Yep. When you say like, okay, I think this thing you're about to do is dumb, but... It's your funeral. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Which is what's coming up next. If I remember correctly, I did. I, this is one of those episodes I don't remember very well, but... I think it has to do with a plot against number two. We see, we, we might have a more sympathetic appraisal, a more sympathetic portrayal of other villagers, as opposed to mindless sheep rotting cabbages, who might join with Six in a plot, as opposed to him being a dick to them and making them be, be afraid to enter into it, oh. deal with him as happened in Checkmate. <clears throat> Right. By the way, do we what what happened to all of the other villagers in Checkmate who were part of Number Six's conspiracy? Were they given uh, lenient treatment for turning him in? Were I would imagine so. To, yeah, know? I would imagine so. I don't know. I mean, Dennis Shaw was not there uh, handing out those Bizet LPs in in this episode. So maybe he doesn't need to be a regional manager anymore. Maybe he went up to corporate. You know, maybe they gave him a promotion. What is what is Dennis Shaw's number? Do you remember? I don't. I don't either. I mean, but there are only like like eight options. <laughs> so. It's probably it's probably 113. Uh huh. 113. Mm-hmm. C. All right. Well, I'll I'll uh, look forward to that. Yeah, I I don't remember. It's your funeral either. It's it's possible that the last time I I did a prisoner rewatch, I I didn't get all the way through. Now because some of these these later ones are, yeah. are feeling less familiar to me. Certainly, Hammer and Anvil, I did not remember clearly at all. Right, I remember the It's Your Funeral number two being hot and blonde and taking off his big thick horn rim glasses and kind of chewing on the, uh, mm-hmm. the earpiece, yep. the ear thing, um, yep. in a way that um, that I remembered. That was seared into my consciousness really? as a young... That, that works for you, huh? As a young strapping boy, yes. I remember That's, liking uh, his affect. Mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm curious to revisit his affect because I remember liking it. And maybe he will join the other number twos at the <laughs> Village Eagle. It's entirely possible. I know. You're, you're trying to bring closure here. And, I am. And, and, and head off another another inevitable diehard anecdote. I, I see what you're Oh, boy. Is, is, there a, to, is there a diehard anecdote here? Uh, just, just to respond to what you just said. In, in Die Hard with a Vengeance. Oh, boy. Uh, the second best diehard movie. There's there's a scene where like, the FBI go. shows up and they're in the van and, and Jeremy Irons, the villain, is going to indicate that he you know he knows all about the FBI. He knows all their moves. He knows all the agents who would be dispatched to, to counter him. And uh, he says something over the radio about how, and what about this guy? Is he still chewing on his glasses to, to butch up? And you cut to this bashful-looking guy who does indeed have his glasses <laughs> in, in his mouth, which uh, I just didn't realize was a, like, what a weird fetish that is. <laughs> some call it a fetish. Some call it just, uh, you know, the way we roll. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, we also didn't uh, mention the fact that um, number six has a personal message put over the loudspeaker of the village. We kind of skipped over that. <laughs> yeah. Which is such a weird thing. It was surprising enough that you could put a personals ad in the tally ho. <laughs> I yep. didn't think they would allow that. But personals ad in the tally ho, but also just like mm-hmm. having like morning announcements, <laughs> like yep. high school morning announcements. like. <laughs> and what has happened to Fenella Fielding? 
I don't know what and, that is. And why have I not said her name, given all the ample opportunities I've had to before now? Fenella Fielding. She was, she's the, can you draw? Can you paint? Can you model in clay? She's the right. announcer lady whose voice we hear in the early episodes. And her name is Fenella Fielding. It's Glenn. great. It's great. But see, here's the other thing that Go struck me. Go ahead and say it. No, Fenella Fielding. Yes. Can you paint? Can you draw? Can you model in clay? Oh, you can hear man. the, you can hear the smile in her voice. If um, all com- proper nouns were like that, we would have no need for pronouns. But why does the supervisor, who is the head of village security, why is he doing morning announcements? Like that seems like <laughs> that seems like a waste of. That's not his. There is some mission creep in, yep. in the. Because why is he doing? And happy birthday uh, to number six. The talent show is coming up, and exactly. also orange alert. <laughs> <laughs> It seems, yes. I don't know how, how we skipped over that. I skipped over that, but like that is only a... six weeks until the ESP and photography competition. <laughs> can you paint? Can you draw? Can you model in clay? Do you have a mental link with any <laughs> other villagers with whom you have a purely chaste relationship? Till till then, be seeing be seeing you. Degree Absolute was conceived by Glenn Weldon and is produced by me, Chris Klemick. I wrote our goofy theme song, which was then arranged and beautifully performed by my dear friend Casey Aaron Clark, singing and playing keyboards, and her brother Jonathan Clark on guitar and percussion, with Marcus Newstead on the bass. Check out Casey at CaseyAaronClark.com and or VitalVoiceTraining.com. Jonathan's band Daybringer is on Bandcamp. You can find them there. Write to the Citizens Advice Bureau at a degree absolute at Gmail. You can tweet us at not a number pod. Rate, review, and subscribe to our show on Apple or Stitcher or whatever platform you use to hear it. Finally, I, I know I shouldn't air a dirty laundry like this, but I got to say that Glenn and I would have a much more smoothly functioning creative partnership if he would just tell me clearly when he is available to record the show. Tonight at Moonset, book to Queen's Pawn 6. Check. I... I don't know what that means. It's no degree partial. It's a degree absolute. absolute. You're going to cut this pause, right? So it's going to seem like it just was boom, 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 like that. You're freezing. You're free. I think you're trying to praise my performance here because you're freezing and I can't hear it. Yeah, you're I freezing think... too. Oh, oh. I'm frigid. That's what you're telling me. (laughs) (laughs) And Darren Nesbitt's the hot blonde one, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you can can check out how how he aged. I choose not to. I choose not to. No, I choose not to. And number six says you'd better report yourself before you deport yourself. Okay. All right. You're proud of that, are you? I don't know. I don't know if I'm proud of it. <laughs> you better check yourself before you wreck yourself. Uh huh. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's coming from the same place. A lot more work. <laughs> a lot more work is involved. Yeah. Than that. You are famously a huge Ice Cube fan, so it's not surprising to me that, I mean, that you would you would drop I mean, in a reference to an Ice Cube song from 1993, making it. Uh, on the more contemporary side of uh, references that that we lean into, I was going to say, yeah, yeah. yeah, 